0: Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Daniel Grohl, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Carleton College and a recent graduate of the PhD program at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk to us about nature and ethics. Daniel Grohl, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So I thought we might begin with an example of how someone might typically make an appeal to nature when making a moral argument when making an argument about what's good or bad, how might they bring the idea of something being natural or unnatural in?
1: I mean, there's one way in which appeals to nature happen all the time in popular culture, and that's just when someone asserts that something would be acceptable, someone responds, it wouldn't be acceptable because it's unnatural, right? And so we see this in popular culture in debates about homosexuality or certain kinds of medical treatments, you might think, or certain technologies, genetic technologies and the like. And so someone will cite the fact that it's unnatural, whatever that means. To show or to suggest or to argue, if you want to call it an argument, that it's immoral, unacceptable, shouldn't be allowed. That's one way. Another slightly more sophisticated way, or more sophisticated way, and this shows up more in appeals to nature and philosophical ethics, is the idea that judgments of good and bad are somehow indexed to a thing's nature or kind or form. Now that leaves aside the question of the content of the kind or the form, so what the actual substantive moral judgments are going to be. But the thought is is that when we say that something is good or bad, we're calling it either good or bad for a certain kind of thing, or we know the good or the bad of a certain kind of thing, and then we sort of, well, deduce is the wrong word, but we extract judgments of what in particular is right or wrong from that. And you can separate those two things, so you can be committed to the thought that judgments of good and bad are somehow going to be indexed to a thing's form, while
0: being pretty agnostic about what the particular substance of that thing's form is. So I might say that different things have different natures and what's good for a person is different from what's good for a flower or right. a rock right. or a mole. So do you think that's right? Should we have this idea that different things have different natures, what's good for one kind of thing is different from what's good for another kind of thing? Does that... Correct. Do you think that makes yeah, sense? I mean, that, that's
1: exactly right. And so that's a nice example where what's good for plants and what's good for humans mm-hmm. is going to be very different once you get below a very general level of specification. So while the substantive judgments are going to be different, for example, plants like rich soil. Rich soil is good for plants. Rich soil is good for humans. I mean, Maybe we can come up with a context where that's true, but it's not going to be one of the first things we think of And what's good for humans. Those two substantive judgments differ nonetheless. The form of the judgment, you might say, is the same. And this is the point that Philip Foote makes
2: in, in natural goodness. So, as you have said, we're pretty familiar with these ethical judgments based on nature from popular culture. It's a very common thing that's thrown around in the debate about homosexuality, that it's unnatural behavior, therefore wrong. Equally, these judgments go the other way, so certain foods will be praised as natural. The fact that they're natural is a good reason to eat them, that means they're good foods or methods of production are natural, therefore good. What I'm wondering is whether it always goes that way. So is it always the case that to say that something's natural is to say that it's good or to say that something's unnatural is to say that it's bad? We can think of the case, for example, of medicines, which are often artificially produced, certainly not something that's found in nature exactly, but things that we certainly don't want to say are bad merely because unnatural. So how is the general argument from nature gonna deal with those kind of cases?
1: Well, I don't think good arguments from nature are going to, because I agree with your suggestion that it just seems absurd to say, I mean, maybe there's a question of what makes something natural, but if we just stick with rough and ready understanding of what that is, it seems absurd to say that because something occurs naturally that it's therefore good, or if you want to flesh that out a little bit more, good for us, good for humans. Uh, so it seems like avalanches are perfectly natural and they can be very bad for humans. Same with earthquakes. Uh, cancer, all kinds of things, right? It's easy, easy to think of examples, and likewise, it's easy to think of things that have been manufactured by us that are perfectly good for us. So it can't be the case that simply citing the fact that something occurs naturally is sufficient to show that it is either good or bad for us. Maybe, although I'm even skeptical here, it's enough to suggest a prima facie reason to think that it's good for us, but uh, that's probably doubtful as well. Yeah, so I'm skeptical of those sorts of arguments from nature. I'm more convinced by this sort of second kind of appeal to nature that I mentioned earlier, that where the idea that the form of judgments are indexed to the kind of being that we
2: are, and now we're going to have to do investigation into what kind of being that is. So maybe you could say a little bit more about the second kind of view. So when we say that the form of ethical judgments are indexed to the kind of being that's in question, Maybe you could just expand on that a little bit. What kind of a position is that? What's someone saying when they claim that the form of ethical judgments are indexed to the kind of being in question?
1: Okay, so one thing to say to start off is that according to this view, judgments simply of the form such and such is good are all going to be elliptical, right? There's not good or bad simpliciter. There's different views, but there's going to be the good of a certain kind or the good for a certain kind. So in that way, in order to know whether something is good or bad, we need to ask in reference to what? can be good for you, good for us as humans, and bad for the plants, good for the mammals, and bad for the reptiles, or something like that. And so in that sense, the judgments of good and bad are going to be indexed to the kind of thing that it is. You need to look, and if you want to use the term form of life, the thing's form of life to understand what's going to be good or bad for it, then that kind of investigation will ground judgments of the form. You know, Stunting someone's intellectual growth is bad for a person or something like that.
2: Yeah. So that seems like a fairly plausible position to take up from the start. Seems reasonable to ask when someone says such and such is good. Well, good for what? There are all kinds of different beings in this world. There are all kinds of purposes things could be put to. Seems like a reasonable question to ask, good for what? But then you would think, having asked that question and someone having answered, well, good for a bat or good for a mole or good for a human being, it might just look obvious at that point, well... Of course now we're interested in the kind of being that's in question. There must be some kind of ethical importance of the kind of being that we're talking about here. That seems on the face of it like a pretty plausible position, but presumably people have found problems with it. You
1: know, people, I think, find it implausible. Right? Not everyone agrees. I mean, it's roughly Aristotelian. Yeah? So Some people think that the basic category is just going to be goodness or badness, simpliciter and that you might explain what's good for us in terms of what's good or bad, simpliciter. So it's the final stopping point it isn't going to be good for, but it's going to be good or bad. Uh, one example I heard is, is, look, something can be good for the Russian mafia, but bad, right? Now my temptation is to say, yeah, but it's bad for the larger community, and, and so simply the fact that something is good for someone doesn't suggest that it's, this is what opponents are going to want to say, good. because so we can think of clear examples where something is good for someone or a group of people, but we want to say it's bad. And now the question is, we want to push up further and say, yes, well, bad for whom or for what. And I think opponents will want to say, we can keep playing this game and, say, and at the end of the day, when we end up with a judgment, such and such is good for such and such, we can ask, yes, but is that good or bad? And I think they think that's a perfectly intelligible move to make. And that's one reason to be suspicious of this view. Another related reason is that it looks like it's intelligible to ask whether we can improve our natures. It seems intelligible to me, at least, to say our nature is good or bad. And there, it doesn't seem to make sense to say good or bad for us, quay, beings of this sort. Now, you might think on a, with a little bit of investigation that in fact that question doesn't make sense. I'm inclined to think that some version of it does make sense, we can ask, maybe it doesn't make sense to ask, is our nature good or bad taken as a whole? Or if we were imagining someone designing creatures ex nihilo to say, well, what would be a good creature and what would be a bad creature without any information about the environment or anything like that? That doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense. But it seems to me to make sense. We can ask particular things about our nature. So you know, I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if we could fly? Wouldn't it be great if we were invisible? Uh, wouldn't it be great if our eyesight was better, if we could run faster? You might think all these things are not in our natures. Nonetheless, it makes sense to ask whether it would be better if we had these capabilities. You might say even better for us, but here the, thought, the, the problem becomes that if it's better for us to have something that is foreign to our nature, then it doesn't look like we can appeal to the kind of being we are to explain why it's better for us. And that suggests that there's some notion of good or bad, or better or worse, that floats free of individual kinds. So one thing would be to claim that even those local judgments are unintelligible. I think that's not a very compelling way to go. Another would be to say, well, we can make sense of those local judgments, but only by holding fixed a whole bunch of other assumptions about the thing's nature. So it sort of looks like we're asking whether it would be better if our natures were different, but we're in fact not. We're asking whether given holding fixed this part of our nature, it might be better if we could do such and such. But anyway, those are just some of the reasons I think people would be skeptical of this approach. I mean, a whole other reason is that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the appeal to nature is. So people just are very skeptical of the thought that a thing's nature provides any sort of normativity at all. Why should we care about the fact that uh, wolves hunt in packs or humans have two
0: legs? Why should that mean anything and why should that have any sort of normative force at all? So a number of people have suggested that evolutionary theory can be applied in some way to ethics, that we can learn about what's good or bad for us, given this view that different things are good for different kinds of creatures or different kinds of entities. So if we study, as it were, where we came from, how we arrived on the earth from an evolutionary standpoint, that might have something to tell us about what's good or bad for us. So maybe you could tell us a bit about some of these approaches. Uh, What are some of the ways that evolutionary theory is brought into ethical debates? And there's
1: really bad ways in which it's brought in, in which there's all kinds of confusions between what we might want to call descriptive accounts about how in fact certain tendencies arose and then claims about what in fact is right or wrong. So I don't know if it's Rusey or Ruse and, and Wilson have a famous paper where they seem to me to switch between explanations of behavior in evolutionary terms and then claims about what in fact is right or wrong. I think that's the bad way to go. I think that
0: happens a lot. So what's the difference between giving a description of something and making a claim about what ought to be? It seems like you're accusing those authors of committing some sort of fallacy. So what is that fallacy exactly?
1: Well, I'm not sure I want to say that they necessarily are falling prey to a general fallacy of of failing to respect descriptive versus normative or evaluative language. Although maybe I think that something like that's true. I I mean, all I have in mind is, is simple examples where we say something like, look, humans evolved to do such and such this is why we behave this way, to a claim that behaving this way is the way we ought to behave. And that just seems like a fallacy. It is, I mean, One way of putting it is you can't get from an is to an ought. I don't think that's the right way to put it. I think that's a question-begging way to put it, because it seems to me that you can say all kinds of things. Such and such is cruel, is wrong, is uh, not to be done. I don't know. These are pretty trivial examples, and then you can easily infer oughts, right? I think the better way to put it is that you can't get from non-normative claims to normative claims. An account that is devoid of a evaluative language or normative language of why we do what we do, it seems to me, will not be able to ground
0: claims that have normative content. And that's what I mean. So, for example, let's say some evolutionary theory tells me that humans are inclined to hold doors open for elderly women. And that's a good thing to do, and you know, we're naturally disposed to behave that way.
1: Well, the thought's yeah. just right. I mean, that, that, gives no, that, that doesn't warrant uh, a judgment that we ought to hold doors open for... Right, or exactly. Ladies. Right. right. So oh, that, that we can still ask the question. We can know all of that. The evolution has geared us to do all kinds of things. We have all kinds of tendencies
2: as a result of the way we've evolved. And now we can ask, ought we to be that way? And that point puts an interesting kind of gap between the idea that we have of something being good in the sense of being a result of evolution, being good for survival. And something being good in the ethical sense, Correct. right? Because right. you might say part of the power of evolutionary theory is that it shows how in a certain sense the best always comes through So by natural selection Whatever the best characteristics are to have the best kind of being it is to be well, the best for the survival the, the best for survival right. precisely so maybe that's where the wedge is being driven here so You read this a lot in works of popular science, I think, and evolutionary psychology. People very quickly making the jump from something being good for survival. And it's an exciting thought, right, that ethics might be good for survival. Uh You, You start to read these books about how human beings started living together and they evolved certain ways of behaving and you can see something like morality emerging and you think well this is really exciting right. it looks like morality as a way of behaving was good for survival And hey, bang, now we have our grounding for ethics. Now we know where to stop. And it seems like what you're suggesting or what critics in general of this view would suggest is, is no, that's not necessarily the right way to think about it. That's too quick. Just to say that something had an evolutionary advantage, well, it is to say that it's good for survival, is not necessarily to say that it is good for human beings. That it's good in the sense that we use that term when we're talking about ethics. Right, that
1: seems right to me. And you might even accept that it was good for survival. Why certain ethical institutions or ethical norms or principles, however you want to call them, came to hold sway was that they filled some need, and that need may well have been related to survival. Nonetheless, they can now take on a life of their own. That that was their origin doesn't mean that that's what provides their
2: normative ground, if you want to put it that way. So if we leave the evolutionary perspective for the moment, if considerations of nature aren't grounded in thoughts about evolution one might reasonably ask well what are they grounded in that's the way that the kind of natural modern scientific mind is going to want to think about nature we think that we've moved on from aristotle right we you know we have this idea of the greeks that thought of every kind of being as having this nature that was fixed and it was always the same and that's what they were thinking about now of course we know or we think we know that that's not the case because natures evolve they change over time So one might worry that if with the discovery of evolution, this idea of fixed natures goes out of the window, then any ethical appeal to nature would go out of the window as well. What is there left to appeal to? Right. Yeah, that's a very good question.
1: And I think here it's worth distinguishing between two forms that appeals to nature take, at least amongst neo-Aristotelians. So one, which I'll give the oxymoronic title, metaphysical naturalism which you find, I think, in Foote, coming from Thompson, is the thought. Now, this is a very rough-and-ready way of putting it. We have no choice, but when we're thinking about the good or bad of individuals, is to index it to the kind of thing that they are, that's sort of a logical form of thought, if you want to put it that way. And so we necessarily index it to the kind of thing that it is, and that that's just sort of an inescapable form of thought. And now Foote thinks that you don't need to look at a thing's evolutionary origins, but you take rather a snapshot of its sort of lifespan. I think she says something like one or two generations. You sort of glean its life form from that. And that's perfectly open then to the thought that 10,000 years from now, the life form is going to look extremely different. And you don't need to look at how it was 10,000 years prior to understand the current life form. Her thought is just that we sort of see it every day, we see it over time, over generations, and our understanding of the life form come from that plus this thought that we have no choice in some sense. It's sort of just a feature of our way of thinking or of thought in general, if you want to put it that way, that judgments of good and bad are related to the kind of thing one is. The less sort of metaphysical form of naturalism, which you find in um, Richard Kraut in his latest work, he doesn't like a good of a kind. He prefers good for, bad for. We could talk about what's good for the mammals, what's bad for the mammals, what's good for the Americans, what's bad for the Americans. I think those are all intelligible. When it comes to ethical judgments, he thinks it's gonna have to do with the fact that we're human, but not for any sort of deep reason of the Footian, Thompsonian type about the form that our thought must take. I think he thinks that philosophical reflection suggests that we think that the best way for someone's life to go is to exercise their capacities that they have as human that argument is open to a refutation if you could convince them that actually what's best is to exercise your capacities qua mammal. There's nothing in his view which rules that out as some sort of conceptually suspect. So that's a much more uh, moderate form of the appeal to nature that just says, look, I think it's not unreasonable through sort of some form of reflective equilibrium to say it looks like what we want for ourselves, for our friends, for our kids, is for them to exercise the capacities that they have quay human. And now, again, there can be a discussion about what exactly those capacities are and what good exercise of them equals uh, or looks like. But there's nothing in Richard's view that says because it is a feature of humans that therefore it has any kind of normative uh, significance necessarily. We might end up deciding, look, human capacities have nothing to do with what's good or bad for us. It has something to do with our mammalian capacities or our American capacities or something like that.
2: And then it looks like we get back to the objection you mentioned earlier, which is well, how are we going to decide which of these natures we want to appeal to except by some kind of normative judgment? Right. I would rather be a good human than a good mammal because, well, frankly, I think it's better to be a good human. I'm not particularly attracted to the thought of being a good mammal. So it looks like, again, we're getting back into this same criticism that there's going to have to be some kind of higher notion of good. It's mm. not, mm-hmm. as you've put it, indexed to a particular nature, but that is independent of them and that we can use to choose between one or the other when we decide what nature we're going to appeal to.
1: Right, well there's two things you said that I think need to be kept apart. One is is that it looks like we have this problem of we're going to need to appeal to some sort of normative notion or content to explain what's good or bad for us and then the thought is yeah but then you're sort of building in to your account the thing that you're trying to explain. And that's going to be a problem for people who want to appeal to the good or bad simpliciter. Why is such and such good for us? Well, it's good. And now we want to know why is it good? Well, you know, it just is or something like that. But then there's this other move of wanting to get away from good or bad for and move to good, which you still are going to have this problem of appealing to something normative, not being able to get outside normativity to explain what's normative. But you've, from their point of view, removed yourself from the problem of indexing good or bad to particular kinds. You've got a more general notion of good or bad. I mean, in some sense, it's a problem if what you're after is a certain kind of certainty about what's good or bad, simplicity or good or bad for us. Then I think it's probably right that you're not going to be able to get outside the normative, to put that in. I mean, it's a very vague way of talking, but uh, you're not going to be able to appeal to non-normative notions to explain what's normative. In this sense, I like Crote's approach. He, says, this is, look, I, you know, he lists a bunch of human capacities that he thinks are the ones that the exercise of which lead to a good life. So this is going to be open for argument. Some people are going to disagree and this is just sort of what doing uh, ethics involves. And I think he probably thinks at the end of the day there's not going to be a knockdown argument to show what's on the list. Right? You might say something similar about Martha's capabilities approach um, or just any substantive notion of what's good or bad for humans. It looks like
0: someone could deny it without contradiction. So in that sense it's going to be irresolvable. We started off by making a distinction between two ways you might invoke the idea of nature when making an argument about what's good or bad. One way you might invoke the idea of nature is in discussions of, for example, homosexuality or stem cell research, basically saying that, well, what's natural is good. You wanted to object to that, and instead you wanted to suggest that a more productive way of invoking the idea of the natural in ethical arguments was for it to help us think about what the different kinds of good are, so to speak so that what's good for one thing might be bad for another thing, and so on and so forth.
1: I mean, another way of thinking about it is appealing to a thing's nature. Or the, you might think the question we're trying to answer is what makes judgments of the form such and such as good, or good for mark, or whatever you want to put it, true. And the thought is that appealing to the kind of thing one is is one way of answering that question it's true in virtue of the kind of thing mark is that exercising his intellectual capacities is good for him right and now that's to be distinguished from views which want to say what makes it true is some sort of pro attitude we have toward mark exercising his intellectual capacities or a more robust sort of realist view that i mean i'm not sure what the view would be it's just good it's a fact it's out there that it's good for humans to exercise their intellectual capacities. So you can think of the appeal to nature saying, no, we can answer that question another way, and saying it's good for Mark because of the kind of thing that
0: he is. But just now, it seemed like you were moving in that sort of direction, suggesting that maybe if something is good for humans, that's better than if it's good for mammals. Uh, I'm not sure I
1: said that, oh. although I'll say it's very tempting to want to say better to be a human uh. than to be a cat. Uh, and that gets us back to what we talked about before. I mean, that's very closely related to the thought of whether we can talk about improving a thing's nature. So I'm inclined to think there's something very intelligible to the thought, better to be a human than a cat. But I also think it's very puzzling to unpack that idea.
0: There's a passage in Aristotle where he, um, this is actually why I brought up moles. I think he says something like, uh, maybe it's bad to be a mole because they have vestigial eyes. So there's something that's kind of not working in their mm-hmm. physiology. I think I agree that it's kind of difficult to really unpack that idea and make it fit into the rest of our moral ideas.
1: Right, Uh, although, I mean, this is another way in which thinking that good for is the ultimate level of judgment is not the right way to think about it, is people might point to exactly this and say, look, the goods that humans enjoy are, are just good, art and music and intellectual activity. And so you start off with a list of things that are good and then we explain why it's better to be human than a cat because we can enjoy more of those things. That way of thinking about things is not gonna have any problem accommodating the thought that it's better to be a human than a cat. The more Aristotelian views that I'm talking about are going to have more trouble. And they, you know, they might not say, look, this, they, they might say this is an apparent trouble. It's not really a trouble. And if you scratch the surface, what are you saying anyway? Better to be a human than a cat. Sure, it seems better for me to be a human than a cat. But that's because I'm human. But maybe if we imagine someone trying to populate the, I, I don't know, if you imagine God saying this next creature, will it be a human or a cat? Does it make sense to say, well, it's better to be a human?
0: I don't, I, mean, I don't know. Yeah, we'd have to put ourselves in the shoes of God, which admittedly is somewhat difficult. So I guess the last question I'd like to ask is, this question, I think you alluded to it earlier about whether it's part of our nature to be moral. Is evil unnatural in some way? Here's a not very satisfying answer. I think we probably have
1: the tendency to want to do well by others, and to care for others very, very deeply and not for self-interested reasons. And I think we, deeply ingrained, have the tendency to want to hurt other people and elevate ourselves above others. It seems clear to me those are both a part of who we are.
0: Daniel Grohl, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I had a great time. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.